Well, I'm going to pray for us here in a second. And why I'm going to do that is um, I've had an absolutely insane week uh, with the Lord. Um, I have done some of the most ugly face crying. You know what I'm talking about when I say ugly face? Like the crying you don't want people to see because you have the ugly face. Um, Just uncontrollable. Um, I have laughed at the same time about some of this stuff harder than I've laughed in a long time. And uh, as I sat down on Friday and Saturday to kind of compile all the thoughts and study and everything, um, I feel like a, like a like a two-year-old trying to explain calculus right now. Um, I feel like I've got my son and I'm holding him over the engine of our car and I'm saying, Hudson... Um, Explain what's going on here. Um, he may know that the car is what we get in to go somewhere. And I actually believe what we're going to do this morning um, and what we're going to talk about this morning literally can take us somewhere. Um, but I am really struggling to know how to say what I'm about to say. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to pray for myself and I'm going to pray for us because I, I do believe that the Lord um, has something for us to experience this morning. And I hope I can get out of the way enough uh, so that it can happen. So let me uh, let me pray for us. Jesus, um, you know how I feel. Uh, you know my own heart better than I know my own heart. You know the hearts of everyone in this room and kind of where they're coming from and where they're at. Um, you know the things that clog our ears and uh, clog our hearts and minds from the receptivity uh, to you uh, that we absolutely need in order for anything uh, in our life uh, to change. And so I ask uh, this morning that you would uh, move in such a way, uh, give me even ears uh, to know when to say things and not to say things even right now, which uh, if I'm honest, I'm terrified about, and give us ears uh, to hear the things that you're saying to us, um, convict us, Comfort us, guide us, lead us uh, over these next few minutes in your name. Amen. Um, We've been talking, if you've been here at all over the last months, uh, through Acts. If you're here for the first time, you wouldn't know that. But we've been studying the life of the early church in Acts and what uh, were the marks of that. uh, Believing that that is the marks of what it means to be a community of people on a mission, um, and that's what we believe Midtown is, is it's a community of people uh, that God has brought together for a specific purpose, and that he's leading us and, and guiding us into understanding what is that specific purpose, and then even giving us the plans and the energy and the courage and all those things to walk in that. Um, and last week, uh, Joel talked about, and I, I don't know if you've studied Acts at all, if you spent any time in it, um, he studied, and we, we talked through Acts 12, and Peter's kind of miraculous escape from prison, it's very easy, um, or at least it is for me, someone who's read things like this multiple times, to kind of uh, lose the grandeur and the kind of ridiculousness of what's actually going on. Uh, the, the kind of crazy stuff uh, that God is up to in the life of the early church. And it's also very easy for me to kind of compartmentalize that and say, well, that was a specific time, that was a specific... Uh, way that God was choosing to do things in that time, and that's really ultimately somewhat irrelevant for where I'm at here in 12 South at you know 11:40 on Sunday morning, and the rest of things that I've got going on in my day. I'm not really sure that's kind of how God moves and grooves anymore. Um, 
But I challenge us uh, that we would step back into the grandeur of the story uh, this morning. We're going to look at just four verses in Acts 13, and you're going to probably be amazed <laughs> that I actually have this much to say about four tiny verses. But uh, these four tiny verses have kind of ruined me uh, this week uh, in preparation for this. But just in recap, for all of us who were here and all of us who weren't here, three things. I wasn't here, but I listened to the sermon uh, that Joel preached And this just kind of brings us into the kind of craziness uh, of what was going on in Acts uh, 12 and really had gone on since Pentecost, which is Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came. Um, The deep sleep of Peter was something that Joel talked about. Uh, Herod had just murdered James, had him beheaded or put to death with the sword, they would assume beheaded. Um, And here Peter finds himself in prison. probably staring down the barrel of that same outcome. This is going to be the end. In fact, in John 21, Jesus had told Peter, hey, uh, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you took yourself where you wanted to go. But now that you're older, you're going to be led by somebody and brought to places that you do not want to go. It says that that would to indicate the death, the kind of death that Peter would glorify God. So it's not like this is a foreign idea. Um, has anybody ever kind of forecasted something's going to happen and then you start kind of seeing the events turn and you realize, oh crap, like here it comes. The, the anvil is about to drop. Um, I'm sure Peter found himself, uh, at least on some level, you would want to believe he found himself in that emotional place. This is the end. I'm imprisoned. My buddy James just got knocked off. Um, I'm next. So the deep sleep of Peter and I'm not even going to talk any about this, but just think about this. How in the world, in, in the most anguishing times of your life, whatever your prisons are, uh, is rest, is peace, is deep sleep a mark of that? I don't know. It isn't for me. Most of the time. When I find myself there, rest isn't what marks my life. The second thing was earnestly praying. Uh, Joel talked about this idea. What role does prayer play? And we're going to talk, it kind of, uh, not at length, but we're going to talk about prayer this morning. Um, wouldn't you want your, your boys to like set up prison break for you? <laughs> like, that's great that you're praying for me. Thank you. I want you to get off your hind and actually do something about this. Um, hire a lawyer. Come to my defense. Do something. Don't just pray. Like, isn't that even, isn't that kind of salty when someone, you tell somebody like, ah, I'm just really hurting and I have these needs and someone says, oh, I'll pray for you. You're kind of like, you know what, I just want to slap you. Because the reality is, is I don't actually believe, one, that they will. It's part of the problem. Um, and that's probably rooted in the fact that I don't do that, not that they actually don't do it, which isn't even what we're going to talk about this morning. But uh, And the second thing is, is I don't believe prayer does anything. I, I, I literally don't believe that. Prayer is just this kind of thing that we're kind of called to do, but it, really, in all honesty, it doesn't... It doesn't change anything. It doesn't affect anything. It kind of, it's just kind of this rote thing that we're supposed to do as Christians. No jailbreak. These guys literally are seeking the Lord to act on Peter's behalf. And the third thing was God's intervention in Peter's situation. 
which, to which Peter said, I know without a doubt the Lord sent an angel to free me from Herod. Why didn't he free James? Ooh, don't go there. Why'd Peter get the, uh, the extension on life and, and James didn't? Um, Peter rested. They prayed. He knew without a doubt all of these things are rooted in something. And I'll, I'll say this, that none of these things make sense to us. Everything about your natural self wants to revolt against the things that I just said, just briefly. They don't make sense. Well, I would like to suggest this, and this is going to kind of be our push point for today. I actually just did that like I was on a skateboard or something. Um, that the peace, that the trust, that the rest that we see in Peter was a, a result of an experience of Jesus Christ, not just knowledge about Jesus Christ. Now, I was sitting there, and I don't even know whether I should try to attempt to say this <laughs> right now, but isn't it odd that, that Peter was a guy who literally spent days and months and years with Jesus, and yet we don't see this kind of rest and peace and trust in Peter until after the resurrection, <laughs> after the coming of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, you and I have unparalleled access to in the history of mankind. We have things that Moses and the prophets longed to experience and understand. Just that question alone we could talk about for hours this morning, but why is it after Christ's death and resurrection that we see this peace? Because when I say experience of the presence of God, I'm not talking about a physical experience, which... Don't haven't you caught yourself saying that every once in a while? Oh man, what it would be awesome to be at like see him feed the five thousand. When they fed when he fed the five thousand, they were already asking questions and didn't understand the magnitude and the gravity of what was going on. We actually believe that yeah, if I were back there, this tells us something a little bit about our absolute complete narcissism and pride. Uh, if I were back there, which Peter couldn't be any more of a self driven dude. I would have believed. I would have been able to kind of turn the corner emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and really gone to the cross with Jesus. I would have been able to fulfill what Peter said he would do. I will die with you. We actually believe that. So when I'm talking about an experience of God, an experience of the presence of God, I'm talking about the exact same thing that Peter and the, and, and the apostles are experiencing in Acts. Not the apostolic witness of the person of Christ, but what has happened as a result of the Holy Spirit after Christ's death and resurrection in Pentecost. So we are unequivocally in the same boat. And that should give us a lot of hope. I'm going to pause at different points in this. Um, because I'm I'm really searching to know where to go uh, in some of this, so um, you can pray for me if I pause and don't get uncomfortable, because uh, I'm already uncomfortable. Um, and I would suggest this, that Peter got set free from that prison he was in long before Acts 13. That the release of the prison 
the actual cutting off of the chains, the things that we see going on in actual physical reality in Acts 13, why he was even able to rest, sleep, and all those things was because he got cut free from that prison in John 21. He understood that those things uh, were not stemming from his own strength, but they were stemming from an experience of God through the Holy Spirit. So, um, both Joel and Randy, I believe, I know I was downtown, and I, I believe Joel ended with this too, uh, this idea that challenging us to consider what prisons uh, do we find ourselves in. This prison, uh, I believe that we find Peter in, was something that he obviously, if he was in deep sleep, would believe this is where the Lord has me. The Lord has brought me to this place, John 21. You're going to face these kind of things. I'm going to lead you where you don't want to go. So there are a couple kinds of prisons. We're going to talk about the latter of these two, but, well, not totally. Ones that the Lord has led us into, and he's led us into those places um, so that we could learn how to trust and rest in the midst of the agony of those prisons, because that doesn't diminish the pain of these things. Don't hear me saying that. It's not happy-go-lucky, oh, this is awesome, you know, cookies and milk. Uh, This isn't tough. Uh, It is tough, but... You can still rest and have peace in the midst of absolute hardship. The second thing are the prisons that we find ourselves in that are constructs of our own sin, of our own idolatry, and of our own self. And those prisons are prisons I believe that he longs to free us from. He longs to bring us out of. He doesn't want us to sit in those and rest in those and have peace in those. He longs to dislodge those. He longs to decimate those, to expel those things, to bring us out of those things. So, this morning, (laughs) here's what we're trying to do over the next few minutes, and I hope it'll be few. Um, We desire, and I believe why you're here this morning, is you desire to experience the presence of God to have an actual experience of his presence, not just to know something more about him, some nugget of truth to kind of take home and go work, but you long to have an experience of the presence of God, which is something that he initiates, not something that we create. We long to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk about three things. I'm about to read a passage in Acts, uh, Acts 13, verses 1 through 4. Um, there are three things we see going on in Acts 13, 1 through 4, and that's this. We see these guys, uh, guys in particular, but this wasn't limited to men uh, at that point, uh, or at all in in the New Testament. They were worshiping, they were fasting, and they were praying. Now, any of these three things would, could be multiple sermons within themselves. So we are just going to literally, like, scratch the bare surface of these three topics. But uh, I'd love for you to think about these three things as they are in relation to one another. Um, Many of us come and we do what we consider this is I'm coming to worship. Um, I hope that when we leave this morning, your understanding of worship would be absolutely, profoundly greater than what you experience the hour to hour and a half that you come to Midtown 12 South. That this literally is like a sliver of the pie of what worship is and can be for us who are in Christ. The second is fasting, which I don't know about you. Um, it is so foreign to me <laughs> to fast, to go without. Uh, 
food in the New Testament, but to go without anything. Let's just be honest. I am a raging consumer of everything that's in front of me. And I will gobble it up, throw it away, and say, where's more? I'm like a giant land monster of consumption. And then prayer, um, prayer um, being a complete 180, I hope. I think most people think of prayer as being what we say, how we address God, and that shifting into more how we listen. Um, So three statements. If you write things down and you want to write these things down, I'll kind of come in and out of these for the rest of the morning. Worship, one. You can't worship what you don't love. You cannot worship what you don't love. Second, this has to do with fasting. You can't stop eating that which feeds you most. You you are powerless to stop eating the thing that feeds you most. And the third thing is this, is prayer. You can't hear, and hearing is different than listening. Hearing is something far deeper than listening. It actually has to do with understanding, discernment. Knowing the will of God. You can't hear if you believe you know what you need for your life. Most of us are here. We come through that door and we actually believe, I know what I need and I'm here to get it. And I'm comfortable with the idea that God, and this is kind of the Christian thing to do, is going to be the conduit by which I get what I need for my life. And that's my understanding of prayer. Is as I petition God, and, and at least I'm coming to Him for it. I'm not coming to these other things. I would suggest that that is, and this is my, I have this perspective. <laughs> this perspective got rocked this week. That is an infantile understanding of prayer. Absolutely base level understanding. Now we start there, uh, but it's so much more than that. So, how does this happen How do we rest? How do we trust? How do we even stay hopeful in a God-given prison or be set free from the prisons of our own making? Why is what we're doing here this morning not enough? Because I would wager to say most of us actually believe that because this is really most of the time we give the Lord in a week. This is it. Come here. I'm a part of this. Maybe I'll go to a K group. It's kind of just a fractional portion of my life. Let me explain to you, or try to explain to you, the calculus that I am two years old trying to understand uh, why I believe what we're doing here isn't enough. It isn't enough to free us from those prisons. Um, Thomas Chalmers, some of you may know who that is. I'm very, don't know a ton about him. Um, learning more about him, wrote a sermon. It's like a 14-page doctoral dissertation called the expulsive power of a new affection. I said I was going to read Acts, didn't I? <laughs> Let's read Acts real quick. <laughs> Acts 13, uh, verses 1 through 4. It says, In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, 
went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. There were prophets and teachers, which we're going to talk about just briefly. Worshiping, fasting, led to hearing from the Holy Spirit. So then they repeated that, fasting and prayer, and then they were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Those are kind of the key things that hopefully we'll look at this morning. So um, why is what we're doing here this morning? Um, Why is it not enough? Why is it not powerful enough to set us free to see our lives marked by the kind of movement of the Holy Spirit that we see marked by uh, and in the lives of these guys? I'll read this real quick. Um, Expulsive power of a new affection. Um, It says this, and this has to do with worship. This has to do with why we don't fast. This has to do with why we don't listen when we pray. It says, in a word, if the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object. Uh, This is wordy. Um, Disengage the heart from from the positive love of one great and ascendant object, the thing that we worship, is to fasten it in positive love to another. That's how it's dislodged then it is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, which is mostly what we spend time doing, showing how vain the things are that we love and that we run after. What Chalmers is suggesting here is that there's no power in that. Showing the vanity of it, you know that cigarettes are going to kill you, but you still smoke them. I know that, that driving too fast may get me a ticket, but I still do it. I know that fill in the blank. I mean, exposing the ridiculousness of the things that we do and that we run after, does that really have any power to keep us from those things? Just, I know that's bad for me. Who? I do things like that countless times a day. So why do I think that understanding the worthlessness of it is all of a sudden going to unlock some key and then I'm going to be able to walk out of my prison of that? It is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter, that all old things are to be done away and that all things are to become new. To obliterate all of our present affections by simply expunging them so as to leave the seat of them unoccupied would be to destroy the old character and substitute no new character in its place. The only way our affections are dislodged The only way that we become people who worship, fast, and pray, which I'm about to talk about quickly. Um, It's so hot in here. Is everybody just dying? I feel like I'm in a swimming pool right now. Like, if you could see behind my knees, there's so much sweat. And it's good that I wore a white shirt right now, because if I would have worn the dark shirt that I was going to wear, it would look like I had a water balloon in a headlock. Um, I'm completely soaked right now. Um, The only way for us to step into worship and to fast and to pray is by these, these affections, what you would call the reigning affection of your heart, the thing that you worship. The only way for that to be dislodged is by a love greater than that coming in and actually doing it for you. John... 
1 John 4.18 says that perfect love drives out all fear. That this is what occurs uh, in the gospel, is that the love that is demonstrated for us in Christ comes out and actually dislodges those things. So, in Acts 13, I think we get some help here. Um, Worship, fasting, prayer, and I'll try to be quick so that everyone isn't sweating nearly as much um, as I do. Prophets and teachers. I'll say something just briefly about this. Um, it's very easy to read a, a thing like prophets and teachers. Be like, oh, okay, disqualified. <laughs> I am neither of those. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a teacher. Um, but just just briefly for your understanding and for my understanding, a prophet uh, and a teacher in the Old Testament was the person by which God was choosing to communicate and lead his people. And that office was a singular office. One person Moses, David as a king, uh, Samuel as a priest. I mean, we see the Spirit of God resting on a single individual and him communicating uh, to the people, uh, him leading the people. What we see going on in Acts 2, which we talked about a long time ago, uh, and Peter reads uh, from Joel in there, and I would just encourage you to go back and look at it. It's a prophecy from Joel. It says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. What has happened as a result, you and I are living in these last days. Uh, We have unparalleled access to God. What was housed in a singular person is literally housed in for those of you who have received Christ or are in Christ this morning, we constitute just in this room something that was unheard of in the life of Israel in the Old Testament. That you have the Spirit of God residing inside of you. That is what occurred uh, at Pentecost. So don't read over this as, oh, prophets and teachers. Okay, these are the guys who get led by the Holy Spirit. You are prophets and teachers. Because you have the Spirit of God inside of you, He can instruct you and guide you in everything. All of life and godliness. So, I may serve in this role, but I don't have unprecedented access that you don't have to the Spirit of God. You do have it. The reality is we don't exercise it that much, but don't see yourself disqualified because you read something like, oh, prophets and teachers. Worship. When I say that word... You immediately have definitions, don't you? We all have the definitions. Maybe what we're doing here, maybe music. I mean, that's kind of culturally where we're at. Oh, worship, you mean the music. Um, We all have definitions. That's inevitable. Um, I would encourage us to think about this, and I'm going to kind of hit worship, fasting, and prayer pretty quickly here. Worship is the response to the divine initiative. Worship is is a response to the divine initiative. Now, I didn't coin that phrase. Richard Foster, I believe, coined that phrase, but I'm not going to open this book because that will take more time. Um, We see it in Romans 5 and Romans 8. If you go back and read in Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8, Psalm 51, 1 John 3.1, I could read all these passages, and I'm going to spare you the reading of them, totally right now, but basically all of those passages are speaking about the fact that God has acted on our behalf. Romans 5, talking about the fact 
that while we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. What we were, the law was powerless to do, God did by sending His own Son. Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit, or a willing spirit to sustain me. Deuteronomy 8, He humbles us, He gives us manna to teach us that we don't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Worship is not us coming here trying to conjure something up. Worship is coming here to be reminded about the fact that God has done everything for us who were powerless. What we were completely powerless to do, He did on our behalf. To worship is to remember and to respond. And experiencing God's love causes us to respond. I mean, seriously, if someone you love says something sweet to you or if your uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, wife comes up and kisses you, are you seriously going to stand there and just be like, no. When, when someone pursues us, uh, it's natural for us to want to go towards it, to move in for the kiss, the kill. I could tell you so many stories about high school right now. <laughs> just the slaying. that occurred we respond why is this hard now we would usually say well I I forget I'm forgetful you see a lot of this in scripture Um, Israel forgets I would suggest that it's far more deep than that Um, we forget because we're idolatrous at the core of ourselves what we do is we set down the gospel and we pick up whatever it is that we believe will give us life. I have taken the gospel and I have literally laid it down and I do this countless times a day. It's not like, it's like, okay, I'm going to kind of put the gospel in a lockbox and go over here for a little while. We do that sometimes, but this is kind of the ebb and flow of every minute of every day. I set these things down. I set the gospel down and I pick up things You will not live empty-handed. Know that. It is impossible for you to not have something sitting on the throne. (laughs) The throne will not go vacant for one second. It's either the gospel and Christ, the Holy Spirit, is sitting on the throne, or whatever else, yourself and or something else, you will take and place it on there. It won't go vacant. Not for a second. Chalmers refers to this as the reigning affection of the mind. This is what we worship. Whatever reigns, whatever rules. Romans 6 talks about this. The sin ruled and now Christ rules as a result of the Holy Spirit. We worship what we, we love most. So when I said earlier, you can't worship what you don't love, we can't. And what needs to occur is not I need to love God more. It's I need to experience God's love more. I need to experience his love for me in such a way that I actually, because of his love, begin to love him. That's the only way it happens. He dislodges it. We don't cognitively understand I need to love him more. We're powerless to stop that cycle. Which should give you, and it should also give you a lot of hope. um, Because he doesn't call us to do it. Second thing is this, man. Man. 
I'm really going to have to move. Yikes. Fasting. Again, everyone has a definition. How does Scripture inform us about this? And I would encourage you to think about fasting in this term. It's a physical representation of a spiritual reality. A physical representation of a spiritual reality. In Hebrew, fasting means this. Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. Now we think of it traditionally just in the, in the, in the form that we find it in the New Testament going without food, going without drink uh, for a season in order really to hear from the Lord, which I think is accurate. But I think the Hebrew gives us a better sense of it. Because it's not just intake, right? If I put duct tape over your mouth, you not only couldn't eat, but you couldn't talk. You'd actually have to shut up for a second, which is what some of us, including myself, need to do a lot more than we do. Have my mouth closed. And what's left? Your ears. It's the only thing that's left. The ability to hear. I'd encourage you, if you want, I don't agree with everything in this book, uh, but I think he's got some great insights, um, and I might be wrong. (laughs) But uh, this is a celebration of discipline by Richard Foster. Um, And he says this about fasting. He says, oh, fasting. He says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Christ. More than anything, it reveals what controls us, what controls us, what sits on the throne, what we worship. Do you see the connectedness of this? Worship and true worship begets fasting and vice versa. It can expose what is sitting on the throne of my heart. Randy challenged me to fast this week. It is not something I do a lot of. Um, I feel beyond infantile in that. Um, one meal, a couple days. Uh, here's my response. I'm such a horrible faster. I was the grumpiest, complaining, miserable. You want to talk about frail? We actually believe we're these beings who are so strong and so capable and we have so much control over our world. Just go without eating for half a day and see what happens to your emotional self. See how ruined your day can get by having something so minuscule removed from it. And it'll bring you into an understanding of just how powerless you really are to affect change in your life. It humbles us. It shows us our limitations, our weakness, our frailty, our dependence. It shows us our prisons, where we find ourselves to be enslaved. In Matthew 9, Pharisees, I believe it was the Pharisees, were were challenging Jesus, why do your disciples not fast? And he says, why would they fast? I'm here with them. There'll come a time when they will fast. But it's not now. You and I are fasting in a sense because we long for something in body that we already have in spirit. He talks in that passage in Matthew 9 about the fact that you don't pour new wine into old wineskins. In some senses, that is what has occurred for us. New wine, the Holy Spirit, has been poured into this busted, wretched, fallen, 
constantly breaking down, wart-ridden, sweat-mongering individual that is standing in front of you today. I groan, you groan, because we long to be given and to be clothed with our new body. There will come a time when you will fast. Now, think about even just that. What do we spend so much time doing? Tweaking this, right? Getting this all nice and great. Uh, we actually believe, no, I can save the wineskin. <laughs> this one ain't going to burst. Everyone else's body's falling apart, but not mine. It is. It's falling apart. Fasting leads us to that place. And the last thing is this, is prayer. Learning to listen and to have your affections transformed and brought in line with God's will for your life. Now, most of you, when you think of prayer, that's not what you think of. I would, I would bargain because I don't think about it like that. Learning to listen. I thought prayer was when I come and I petition the Lord on, on my behalf for the things I believe I want him to do. I would encourage you that the prayer that you see going on in Acts is a prayer of these guys literally waiting on God to align their hearts with the things that he was calling them to do, to take their affections and, and get them in line with his will and then supply them with the power and the grace to walk out of that. It's perpetual communion with God. Not a set-aside time that we get up in the morning or we do in the evening or throwing up a prayer. What's possible for us now that wasn't even possible for the people in the Old Testament is literally ongoing communion through the Holy Spirit with God. A conversation. You ever have a friend where... You literally haven't seen him for five years, and just like that, you can pick right back up. It's a great thing to have a friend like that. I think it's a great indicator of what's possible as a result uh, of the Holy Spirit, is, is that we can step right into that conversation no matter where we're at, no matter what's going on. Soren Kierkegaard said this. He says, a man prayed, and at first he thought prayer was talking, but then... He became more and more quiet until in the end he realized prayer was listening. Well, if all of this is true, and I swear we're almost done, why do we not see much of it in our lives? If you believe anything that I've said this morning, that worship is what worship really is, it's the response to God's amazing pursuit and love. That fasting is what it is. That prayer is what it is. Why is it that that is so foreign to my life? That none of my life bears the marks of that? And I would encourage you, it's what Chad challenged us off at the very beginning with, is this. We're forced to wait. All three of those things are things in which I step out of the control room of my life, which isn't real, y'all. That's not the reality. I step out of the pseudo-control room of my life. It involves dependence. It involves humility. It involves delayed gratification. Ooh, I hate that. I want it all. I want it all. I want it now. It requires humility. It requires, listen to this, living with hope and not possession. <laughs> I don't want to hope for things. I want things. 
I don't want to wait for things. I want those things to be real. I want them now. My son Hudson says it. I want a zone bar. He's infatuated with these little chocolate bars that are supposedly good for you, and they can't because they taste way too good. And when you say, no, you can't have one, he says, I want it right now. And this very cute and unassuming voice, but uh, it's that sense of, I'm not any different than Hudson. He's two, I'm 33. This goes against everything in our flesh. And literally everything that we learn in our culture to trust something outside of ourselves. Ooh, um, I'm supposed to show a movie clip right now. My wife's shaking her head no. <laughs> um, will everyone indulge this? Uh, has anybody seen the film Minority Report? I'm sorry for calling you out, sweetie. <laughs> I don't really want to show it uh, because of how sweaty I am, but um, everyone's seen the film Minority Report? Um, film a handful of years ago. Uh, the setup is this, and I'll do it quickly. Uh, pre-crime, there are these three beings who can like know the future, and they kind of tell Tom Cruise and his crew of um, dastardly agents that uh, who's going to commit a murder, basically. And um, and so they go and they actually stop it happening. Uh, it's this sense of they know something that we don't. Um, and so they've built this whole crime thing around uh, this. And this clip, I was watching this film the other day, I just happened to be watching part of it, and it's kind of struck me uh, visually at how much um, that, that I don't want to wait on on something uh, that knows more than I do about my life, that I want to exercise complete independence from God. Um, hopefully, this will be a helpful thing to kind of give you a picture that will tie with what we're saying. So, Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Everything in Tom Cruise's mind at that point, run, act, do, don't wait. <laughs> Um, it's a beautiful picture of the nearness, the presence that I'm describing. Now, I don't believe God is this, this frail precog uh, who can't even walk around on his own. That's not what I'm getting at. Uh, that was literally to give you a mental picture of what it looks like um, to wait. Um, that is often what this feels like. Is You can see it in his eyes, can't you? He says, what are we waiting for? These people are coming to kill me. And oftentimes that's what our prisons feel like, whether they're God-given or whether they're man-made. I am about to die here. How can I wait? How you wait, worship fast. Shut your mouth. I'm not talking about eating. can be that. Prayer. Learn how to listen. This is how we become people who wait and experience what I believe is the true home for our souls now. So, that's it. Let me uh, let me pray for us. Lord, um, we know that there's just no power to connect any of that stuff uh, unless your Spirit does it. Um, Lord, uh, I just pray that you'll do that for us, that you'll help us move, uh, even through the frailty of what I tried to say this morning, you'll move our hearts to a deeper experience of your presence, Lord, and that that would 
Indeed, help us wait and be free whether we are in prison or not. In your name, amen.